0: Thank you, Seth and Jen, for leading us this morning. I invite you, if you got a copy of the Bible with you, if you would take it out uh, and turn with me to Daniel chapter 11. We will be this morning in Daniel 11, uh, looking at verses 21 through 35. Uh, welcome this morning. My name is DJ. I'm one of the pastors here at Trinity, uh, and it's my pleasure this morning to be able to open God's Word, lead us in our study in it. Uh, here at Trinity, we have a high view of the Bible. We do a type of teaching called expository teaching, uh, where we most often open up a book, a book of the Bible and start looking through it verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph, uh, seeking to understand what it is that God says to us through His Word uh, so that we can then understand and apply it to our lives today. And one of the one of the things that comes with this that kind of teaching, uh, is you don't get to skip the weird passages, and that means we're in Daniel 11 this morning. This is a text, like Seth said, you've probably not spent a lot of time doing, doing Bible study in Daniel 11. Uh, this is a vision that Daniel has of events in his future. We've seen a lot of this in the second half of the book of Daniel, uh, where we've looked at uh, texts, looked at visions that seem strange, that seem unusual, that seem If we're going to be honest, like they're detached from us. Like they don't have a whole lot to say to us in our world today. But I hope you're finding as we move through this study that 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 first impression is not necessarily true. That there is a lot of truth in these texts that mattered to Daniel and that matters to us today as we seek to follow the Lord. And so this morning, as we look through part two of Daniel chapter 11, I hope that you'll have that same mindset that we're coming to this text because it matters Today it matters to me. It matters to you. God's word speaks truth to us. If you didn't get a listening guide on your way in, a little piece of paper that has the text, it's got some space to take notes, can help you follow along. Uh, You can just slip your hand up. Alex is going to come in from the back, and he will make sure that you get one of those Uh, and join me in Daniel 11. So, like I said, we're we're in week two of three in our look at Daniel 11, and this is the final vision that Daniel sees in the book. The last three chapters of Daniel are dedicated to this one vision. In chapter 10, we saw Daniel prepared for what he was about to hear. In chapter 11, he receives this vision of the future. And in chapter 12, we're going to see the fallout. what, What happens to Daniel in response to what he has seen and what he's understood. And so we're spending three weeks to get through the vision itself. And last week, if you were here, Pastor Dave took us on essentially a Cliff's Notes tour of about 250 years of history, uh, packed into those opening 20 verses or so. So we got a glimpse of wars, schemes, political machinations of many kings desperate to control the known world, and Daniel and his people were caught in the middle of it. Right? They were the, the ping-pong ball getting bounced back and forth as this king of the north and the king of the south fought for control of this region. It's a tough passage of scripture to follow, and I don't mean that in like, I don't know how I'm gonna follow this, but like it's hard to keep up with what's going on as you read through the text. Uh, and with with all of the the king of the north, the king of the south, as we start talking about the Seleucids and the Ptolemies, you're probably thinking, I didn't come for high school history class. Like, why does this matter? Why should I care? about any of this. And maybe at the end of last week's sermon, you found yourself saying, okay, I I get the big idea. I get that God is in control of history from start to finish. But do these details really matter? Like, isn't this just kind of insignificant stuff? You might be tempted to think it's kind of like driving from Louisville to Lexington. You know where you're coming from. You know where you're going. Does it really matter how many bugs you hit on your windshield on the way? Like, do you need to count them and, and keep up with it? Well, I'm going to stretch the analogy a little bit and say, yes, it does matter because sometimes you're the bug on the windshield. Sometimes in life, you don't feel like an insignificant detail, but like the whole story is coming down onto your head and you wonder, what am I supposed to do? This morning, we're going to see a passage like that. We're going to see a time like that in the history of the people of Israel where they were being crushed. And we have a word from God as to how they are going to survive, how they're going to continue to live and glorify him in the midst of suffering. So as we read this text this morning, as we see this dark chapter in their history, if you're in a dark chapter in your own history today, this is a text for you. This is a text that has life for you this morning. And maybe you're not in a dark chapter, but if you've lived very long in this world, you know that just means one is coming down the road. None of us is exempt from suffering, and so let this be a time to prepare your heart so that when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, as we recite from Psalm 23 from time to time, that you're ready, you're ready to fear no evil because you understand God is with you. So how do we view today God's sovereignty over history, not just when we feel lost in the bigger picture, but when the whole picture seems to come crashing down on our heads? That's the the question I want us to be able to answer this morning as we get through this text. So I'm going to invite you to join me as we read together. Daniel 11, beginning in verse 21. Verse 21 says, In his place, and this is referring to one of the kings from last week, in his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, even the prince of the covenant. And from the time that an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully, and he shall become strong with a small people. Without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the province, and he shall do what neither his fathers nor his father's fathers have done, scattering among them plunder, spoil, and goods. He shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. And he shall stir up his power and his heart against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall wage war with an exceedingly great and mighty army, but he shall not stand, for plots shall be devised against him. Even those who eat his food shall break him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. And as for the two kings, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. They shall speak lies at the same table, but to no avail. For the end is yet to be at the time appointed. And he shall return to his land with great wealth, but his heart shall be set against the holy covenant, and he shall work his will and return to his own land. At the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be this time as it was before. For ships of Kittim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw, and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the holy covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the holy covenant. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress, and shall take away the regular burnt offering. And they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And the wise among the people shall make many understand." Though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder, when they stumble, they shall receive a little help. And many shall join themselves to them with flattery, and some of the wise shall stumble, so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. Pray with me, and we'll study this passage together. Our God and Father, revealer of mysteries, one who declares the end from the beginning, we come to you this morning and we ask humbly that what we know not, you will teach us. What we have not, you will give us. What we are not, you will make us for your name's sake. In Christ's name we ask these things. Amen. Amen. All right, so let's do a quick catch-up to remember where we find ourselves from last week. Uh, Pastor Dave walked us through these first 20 or so verses as we looked at, again, like I said, about 250 years of history compressed into Cliff Notes form. We saw the fall of Persia, which is the empire that Daniel is currently serving uh, under the king of Persia. We saw the rise of Greece via Alexander the Great. We saw the splintering of his kingdom and then the subsequent back and forth between two figures that were identified to us as the king of the north and the king of the south. And these two are going back and forth, fighting for control of the region. And who's stuck right in the middle of the north and the south? It's Israel. It's Daniel and his people. And if you remember, what were our main takeaways from last week? The main takeaway from the text was that God is on his throne. He accomplishes accomplishes his purposes. And the strivings of men and women, whether weak or powerful, throughout history, amount to vanity. Right? We saw lots of back and forth plans being thwarted. A window into two to three hundred years of the most powerful men and women on the planet at that time. And all of their plans and all of their schemes and all of their wars. And when all is said and done, you might find yourself thinking, well, not really a whole lot ended up happening. We still have the king of the north. We still have the king of the south. We still have Israel in the middle. So, So what happened of significance? Exactly. That's the point that that gets hammered home here. In all of this, in all this human striving and warring, what comes of it? Nothing. It's vanity. The message for Daniel and the people of Israel was clear. Trust in the Lord. Even when you feel like a ping pong ball bounced back and forth in the senseless mess of world events. Endure. Move through and trust in the one who is really in control. It may look like the king of the north, the king of the south, like they're the ones you need to fear. They're the ones who dictate where history is going. It's not true. God is driving this boat, and he will take it where he wants it to go. But as we get into verse 21 this morning and we enter our text, things change. God's still on his throne, no doubt, but the circumstances are changing because a new figure enters the scene. Here, if we look at verse 21, in his place, so in, in the place of one of the kings of the north, shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. So if you, got, if you have the ESV or the NIV as your Bible translation, it says this is a contemptible person. If you use the New American Standard Version, it describes him as a despicable person. If you're going old school this morning and got your King James, it describes him as a vile person. So contemptible, despicable, and vile. Not really three adjectives that I'd like to have tagged with my name throughout history. I don't know about you. If we're going to summarize, this is is a nasty dude. He is not a friendly guy, our figure who arises here in verse 21. And if you've been following along with us in our study of Daniel, he's actually somebody that we've met before. Back in chapter 8, when Daniel has his vision there in chapter 8, there was a little horn that came from one of these beasts. This is the little horn. This is this guy, Antiochus Epiphanes. Uh, And In Daniel's previous vision in chapter 8, he was this little horn who set himself up as a rival, not just to Israel, not just to God's people, but actually to God himself. He viewed himself as more than just a king. He liked to call himself the manifest God and set himself up in opposition to the worship of the true God of Israel. And what Daniel saw in broad symbolic strokes back in chapter 8, with this vision of beasts and horns and all this funky stuff, now we're actually going to get in a little bit more clear terms, more narrative detail, as this, this messenger describes to Daniel what is going to happen as this contemptible person enters the scene. He's a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. So what do we know about this guy Antiochus? Let's give kind of the cliff note version of his life. Well, he was brother to one of the Seleucids. And the Seleucids, that's the kingdom of the north. So the brother of one of the kings of the north from last week. And he actually came into power as a regent. The throne was not his by right. But he had a couple of nephews who were, who were due to the throne, one of whom was being held up in Rome as a political prisoner. The other one was just a baby. And so Antiochus is holding the throne until one of them can come into the point where they take it. Well, neither one of them would ever get there. Because through shrewd political maneuvering, Antiochus weasels his way into keeping the throne himself. And then conveniently for him, both of those nephews end up dead. I'll let you decide how that probably happens because this bad dude now has control of the kingdom of the north and once he gets control of the throne he quickly wins several major military victories and he establishes himself as a force to be reckoned with on the world stage right verse 22 armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken even the prince of the covenant and from the time that an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully, and he shall become strong with a small people. Without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the province, and he shall do what neither his fathers nor his fathers' fathers have done, scattering among them plunder, spoil, goods. He shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. Remember, the story of last week was this back and forth. The, the north would, would rise, the south would rise. And nobody could really get control of things. There was no stability to be found. Antiochus kind of gets that. He amasses this territory under his control in a way that the previous generations of kings could not. And then he sets his sight on Egypt. Right? Verse 25, And he shall stir up his power and his heart against the king of the south with a great army. This was his prize. Antiochus wanted to do what his fathers could not And unite the empire under his rule He wanted to be the king of the north and the king of the south And so he sets his sight on Egypt And it goes according to plan Right? We see that he will wage war with an exceedingly great and mighty army The king of the south shall wage war with an exceedingly great and mighty army But he shall not stand For plots shall be devised against him Even those who eat his food shall break him, his army shall be swept away, many shall fall down slain. And so what we see if we look back in the history books, and it's important to remember here, Daniel is getting this as predictive prophecy. This is all yet in his future. For us, looking back on the past, it lines up perfectly with what we know of the life of Antiochus Epiphanes. Right? It's so good, remember that some scholars who are not believers, who reject the Bible and say it's it's just the invention of man, it's not God's word, they say this can't be predictive prophecy because it's too good, it's too close. This has to be somebody writing after the fact, writing as if they're predicting the future, because no way a man could could nail the future this well. Well, you're right, no man can predict the future like this, but God can, the one who declares the end from the beginning. And so here we see this Antiochus Epiphanes captures the kingdom of the South, and he even captures his chief rival, Ptolemy IV, makes him his prisoner, and he rules over North and South, and he comes back to the seat of his empire victorious, and with great power amassed. But like most powerful people, he's not satisfied with power, right? Right? That's the deal with power, with wealth, with influence. We always want just a little bit more. And so he wants to expand his territory even deeper into Egypt, even further into the south. And so he heads south again. And verse 28 tells us he shall return to his land with great wealth. His heart shall be set against the holy covenant, and he shall work his will, return to his own land. So here's this picture. He comes home. He's got all the power, all the influence, everything he wants. But then verse 29, at the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south but it shall not be this time as it was before. So Antiochus goes south again to try to capture even further into Egypt, but he's getting a little bit too big for comfort for some of the neighbors, right? They don't want the big fancy house being built right next door to them. And so who's his neighbor at the time? It's Rome, this rising global power. And they say, all right, Antiochus, it's it's time to just put a stop to it and be satisfied with what you got. So he goes south, he goes into Egypt, and he's met by ships from Rome, right? We're going to see in verse 30, ships of Kidim. This is the same region. The Romans send ships. They send an envoy and an army to meet him in Egypt. And an envoy from Rome named Gaius Papilius Lenus, which is just a cool name, right? If any of you are going to have any kids anytime soon, I'm going to recommend you go with that one. He'll be the, the toast of every party. But Gaius comes up to Antiochus, meets him on the field of battle. They're speaking, and he presents him with a choice, Antiochus you can go back home enjoy your empire enjoy your wealth or you can keep going and from this day forth you will be an enemy of Rome and you got to deal with us and so Antiochus is ever the weasel and so he tells Gaius well let me go back and talk to my generals and and I'll get back to you with an answer And Gaius has a reed in his hand, and he draws a circle in the sand around Antiochus, and he tells him, you have to decide before you cross that line. And Antiochus is put on the spot, and he ends up having to withdraw to go back home and abandon his pursuit of Egypt. He goes home humiliated. So, to summarize, bad dude, conquers Israel, great empire, drunk on power, ends up humiliated. This is a recipe for some really bad times to go down in Israel. We're going to see shortly just how bad it will be. All right, Antiochus is a villain. But it's important to note here that if we get anything from these first eight verses, I want you to take away this. He is a villain on a timer. What do I mean by that? I mean he thinks he's running his own show. He thinks he's the most powerful man in the land. But he is only marching to the beat of the true God's drum. He only has power as far as the true God allows him to have it. God is in control. He is on his throne. And Antiochus has an expiration date. He is marching to an appointed end. Did you, did you see those cues as we read the text this morning? The cues that this isn't just a, a history textbook, but there is... There's something else going on here. There is someone controlling this. There is a God who is dictating what will happen. Look back through here. Just a couple of points where that comes out in the text. He shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. Elsewhere, they shall speak lies at the same table, but to no avail. Why? For the end is yet to be at the time appointed. And then later on, at the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south. So Antiochus thinks, I'm running this empire. I'm setting my schedule. I'm doing what I want. But throughout the text, this, this uh, messenger who's speaking this to Daniel is reminding us, this is only happening at the plan of God. right? Antiochus can do nothing beyond what God allows. God is in control. And this villain, and indeed every villain of history, is on a timer. They have expiration dates. Antiochus is bad news for the people of God, but he's no accident. He does not take God by surprise. And he will not ultimately accomplish his own purposes. He will accomplish God's purposes. And that's going to be tough for us to get our minds around as we get deeper into this, but we need to understand this truth. It is a comfort to us, even if it doesn't seem that way at first. Right, the plans and schemes of men and women are vanity. We learned that last week through Pastor Dave's trip through that text. But God is different. God accomplishes his plans. He accomplishes his purposes every single time. Not a moment of history is wasted in God's eyes, but he uses it to accomplish far more than we could ever imagine. So what does this mean for us practically? Practically? For you and I living here 2,000 years, 2,500 years after all this back and forth, it means that we should trust God and we should trust in his word even through the insanity of our lives and of world events. This has been a rough week for our country. We've seen multiple episodes of hate-filled attacks in Pittsburgh yesterday, here in our own city this past week. And you may look at this and you may think, my goodness, what... What senselessness, what insanity, what am I supposed to do? How do I live in this world? The reminder here is that God is not asleep at the wheel. He sees, he knows, and he is going to work to accomplish his purpose, his plan, even through this craziness. Right? It's going to get bad for the people of Israel. You know, we've got a a difficult setup here in these few verses, but as we get into verse 30 and beyond, stuff turns dark really quick. But God is still in control, and he's accomplishing something through it. When we get this truth, when we understand that God is in control, even in the insanity of this world, it doesn't just change our way of thinking. It changes our way of living. It changes what we think is important, and it changes how we think goals and power are achieved. One of the great temptations that we have in a world where we feel insignificant, where we see politics or international relations or celebrity or wealth or influence, we see these things as as how you become a mover or a shaker in this world. One of our temptations can be, "Well, well, I need to become a politician or a celebrity, or wealthy, in order to have any kind of influence. We might even think, you know, I want to reach the world for God. I want to do incredible things and further his plans, and so maybe I need to get into politics so that I can have real power. Because what what can we do as the church, right? Well, You heard from Derek this morning how many thousands of lives are being transformed on the other side of the globe, not because somebody got elected senator, not because of a great political plan, Not because of celebrity or wealth or anything like that, but because God is at work, and he uses what is seemingly insignificant in this world, right? day laborers in Dubai, people who the government of Dubai doesn't even think about, doesn't even care about, and they're transforming their neighborhoods, their villages, their country for Christ because God is in control. Pastor, church planner, and scholar Ian Dougwood uh, had a, this quote to say I came across this week about this temptation that we face as Christians. All right, he said, The kingdoms of the world can often seem overwhelming in their power to accomplish great things. And that power can easily either cow Christians into a state of depressed submission or alternatively seduce them into trying to use the, words, the world's power to do God's work. Some Christians seem to believe that they can hasten the coming of God's kingdom by achieving certain political goals. Yet at the end of the story, and for all their vaunted power, the kingdoms of this world can neither destroy God's work nor establish it. They are merely tools in the hand of a sovereign God who is able to declare the end from the beginning because he alone ultimately controls the affairs of men and nations. And to quote someone even better than Ian Dugwood, Let's quote God himself, Isaiah 37, 26. He's telling Isaiah, he's telling the people of Israel, Have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned from days of old what I now bring to pass. And contextually there, he's talking about the same things that we're seeing in our text in Daniel. The exile of the people of Israel to a foreign land. They're coming back into their own country again, but under foreign rule. This ping-pong ball mentality of back and forth in history. God says, it's me. From beginning, I determined how this was going to go. It's not random chance. It's not rogue agents throughout history working these things. I have declared it to be so. We learned last week that history is full of human vanity. And we see this week that it can even bring some pretty bad dudes onto the scene. But we belong to God's kingdom. And his battles are not won and lost like those of the kingdoms of this world. So what do we do with that? It's important just to point this out. That doesn't mean do nothing, right? Right? When we hear, okay, this world and everything in it is vanity, does that mean like I should just go live in a cave and wait for the end to come? Some people do that. You get your 20,000 cans of tomatoes and go live in your basement and uh, and have satellite radio and, and just enjoy life until the end. No, that's not what we're wanting to do here. After all, think of Daniel. What have we seen Daniel doing throughout this book? He's living in a foreign land, seeking the good of the place where God has put him, serving kings and emperors paying paying, uh, testimony to the greatness and to the goodness of God. So this doesn't mean withdraw from the world, live like a hermit or a monk, but it does mean that we need to keep in mind as we live in this world, in and not of this world, we need to keep in mind who's really on the throne, where true power comes from. Daniel, in all his living, we can say a lot of things about where he's gone, what he's gone through. Not once have we seen him lose sight of who's really running the show. That's the testimony to us. As we see a villain on a timer, we remember that God is in control and we trust Him with what's going to come our way, even when what comes our way is suffering and hardship. Because in verse 30 through 35, we're, we see that Antiochus is going to bring suffering and hardship to the people of God. But we're also gonna see that that suffering is not pointless. He is, we're going to see a people, Daniel's people, the people of Israel, a people forged through fire. Their suffering is not pointless, but at first it it might kind of seem that way. In fact, it's not like Antiochus set his sights against God's people out of some sort of ideological fervor or zealous crusade. Like, if you're writing a villain in a movie... You know, you want the villain to have a really, really good motivation that's compelling and that makes you just hate him a little bit more, but you can kind of understand a little bit where he's coming from. Me and Jordan just the other day watched Avengers Infinity War, and if you're an Avengers fan, you know, Thanos is a really good villain in that movie. I won't spoil anything. I'll keep my mouth shut. But you want a good villain, right? You want a villain that, that, that is lined up to fight the hero for just the right reason. Antiochus, it's not like he's like that. In fact, it's going to be really circumstance that sends him against God's people. So remember where he left him with the Romans? Humiliated and sent home. And so what is this guy who is drunk on power, who has an ego the size of Texas, what does he do when he gets home after this international humiliation? He vents his rage against God's people, against the people who live under his rule, who do not worship him as a god like the rest of his empire does. He's enraged against the holy covenant. So verse 30, ships of Kittim shall come against him. He shall be afraid and withdraw and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the holy covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the holy covenant. He's enraged and he takes it out on the people of Israel. What does this look like? We looked at it a little bit back in chapter 8 when we looked at that vision. And we see it further outlined here. Daniel is told that Antiochus' forces will profane the temple and put an end to Israel's sacrifices. Verse 31 Forces from him shall appear, profane the temple and fortress, shall take away the regular burnt offering, and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. So Antiochus enters the temple, the most holy place in Jerusalem. He enters the temple. And he sacrifices a pig to Zeus on the temple altar. Now, if you know anything about Jewish religion in this time, especially, and even today, like, pigs are unclean. If you look at the dietary laws in the Old Testament, there weren't many pig farmers in Egypt or in Israel because pork pigs were unclean. They were not to eat it, they were not to have it around. No bacon was served at the temple feast in Jerusalem. And so Antiochus takes an animal which they considered unclean puts it in their most holy place, and sacrifices it to a foreign god. Put together to create the maximum insult and blasphemy against God possible. And that's just the beginning, honestly. So this is the abomination that makes desolate that's talked about here. Uh, But it's just the beginning of an effort to purge Israel of their own culture and force them into the culture of Greece. Like, he leaves no place for them to hide. If you possessed a scroll of the Old Testament scriptures... That was now a crime punishable by death. Observing the Sabbath day like the Old Testament commands, also a capital offense. Uh, Following any of the Old Testament Mosaic law, doing any of the prescribed worship in the temple that God commanded, also execution is the order. Any, Any bit of Old Testament Israelite Jewish religion, he made a capital crime and tried to purge it violently and completely out of the land so that people would follow his gods, assimilate into his culture, and unite into his empire. And the result was that many Jews abandoned God, conforming to Antiochus' rule and reaping the benefits. He seduces them with flattery, verse 32. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. So you abandon God, You come into his his world, his empire, he's going to make life great for you. He's going to make it a good life. But not everybody took the easy way out. Daniel is told that those who truly know God will stand firm and take action. Right? Those people in verse 32, people who know their God, shall stand firm and take action. And it's in this crucible, this suffering, this dark chapter of history, that God will accomplish his purposes in their lives, refining, purifying, and making clean his people. We jump ahead down to verse 35, and some of the wise shall stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end. So this is the overarching purpose. This is the end game. This is what God is working towards here, to refine, purify his people in the midst of this. The imagery that's being used here is that of refining precious metals, something that the people of this day would have been very familiar with. If you have gold, if you have silver, they would refine it in order to purify it because when you dig it out of the ground, it doesn't look like a nice shiny ring or earring or necklace or whatever the case may be. It looks like a hunk of gold with a bunch of dirt and rock and other mess in it. And so you put it in a really, really hot furnace and it burns off everything that's impure, everything that's not gold or silver or whatever the case may be. So what you get left with at the end of that is... Pure gold, pure silver, something that you can work with. That imagery, God is applying it to his people. Saying, I'm going to refine you. I'm going to purify you. I'm going to burn off everything that doesn't belong so that you might be pure. You might be in a place where you can enjoy fellowship with me. You can be made like me. God is forging a people for his own possession. And he continues to do that today. Right? The circumstances might be a little different, but his purposes remain. If we're following after Christ, if you're following after Jesus this morning, you can expect that God will be working, he will be forging you into something better than you are today. He is not going to leave you where you are at. He invites all of us in this world to come to Christ just as we are. You don't have to clean up your act in order to come to Jesus. But you better believe he's not going to leave you where you are. He loves you too much for that God is forging a people for his own possession and forging involves fire now that forging was going to the extreme under Antiochus's tyranny but God tells us as Christians today we should expect God to grow and purify us in the exact same way 1st Peter chapter 4 verses 12 through 13 God says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you, as though something strange were happening to you. I don't know about you, but I think that's kind of what I do most of the time. When suffering comes, when hard times come into my life, I think, wow, this is unexpected. This is, you seeing this, God? Can, you want to do something, maybe? Help me out? What God tells us is, don't, don't be surprised. I'm telling you ahead of time that I'm going to do this in order to refine you, to strengthen you. These things come at you so that as you share in Christ's sufferings, you will also share and be glad in his glory when it's revealed. James 1, verses 2 through 4 in the text that David read for us in their scripture reading this morning. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Wait, what? Count it all joy, okay, when you meet trials. I don't follow you here, James. Can can you explain more fully? Of course he will. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So James tells us, rejoice in your trials because you know that in them God is working to grow you. Why does God allow trial and suffering to come into our lives as Christians? Because that's how we grow. God loves us and he is forming my wicked and wayward heart into the image of his perfect son. And that, that involves suffering and struggle and pain. I'm not naturally going to become like Jesus. Like, I don't know if you've ever met anybody who just sleptwalk their way into being a godly person. It don't happen. It's through the fire that God forges us. Comfort does not grow you. Comfort doesn't challenge you to seek something outside yourself. When you're comfortable, you think, I've got everything I need right? Jesus tells a parable of a guy who was rich, and he says, hey, I've got a problem. I've got more grain than I have storage space, so I'm going to rip down my barns. I'm going to build bigger ones. I'm going to throw the grain in there. I'm going to need nothing. I'm going to kick back, relax, and enjoy the rest of my life. Comfort says you are self-sufficient. You have everything that you need. What God says to us is that's not true. You need me. You need Christ. And so when we suffer, it turns our eyes away from us when we realize, I can't do this by myself. I can't become who God wants me to be by myself. I can't even survive this day by myself. I need grace. I need help. I need strength. But comfort says, sit right where you are. And I think this is a big part of the reason Why, if you believe what you read in surveys, and and you shouldn't always, but if you believe what you read in surveys, America is full of Christians, right? Everywhere. Something like 70% of the culture claims to be Christian. So America is so full of Christians, but it's yet so devoid of biblical faith and devotion to Christ. Why? Because we we want Christianity, because it sounds good, it sounds cool, but we want a Christianity that doesn't cost anything. And that's no Christianity at all. All right, so listen carefully here and think carefully as well because again, there's a trap we can fall into with this. So if we say that suffering is how God grows us, it's how he strengthens us, it's how he makes us like Jesus, then am I saying that the answer to this question, to this problem is to just embrace hardship and seek out suffering? Like it's, it's a good thing, we should want life to be awful? Should we swear off all our possessions? Should we live in purposeful poverty? Should we self-flagellate like that creepy albino monk in the Da Vinci Code? Anybody seen that one? Guy's weird. No, we shouldn't be like that. I'm gonna go ahead and lay that out there right now. We we aren't told to seek out suffering. That's not what Jesus tells us to do. That's not what the Bible tells us to do. That's not what Daniel is told here. He's not saying, hey, you guys are gonna go through suffering and you need to suffer as hard as you possibly can, because it's good for you, Daniel. That's not the way that God sets it up. Rest is good. Rest is commanded by God. He, he built one day in seven into the calendar and said, you need to rest on this day because you need it. You need your batteries recharged. You're human. You're not God. You need sleep. You need rest. Comfort and wealth are good things, right? They are gifts from God that he gives to his people throughout Scripture. They're not without their inherent dangers, but that's because of our sinful hearts, not because of the gifts themselves. In fact, Daniel, or in fact, God tells his people in the book of Deuteronomy, you're going to come into the promised land and I'm going to give you good things. It's going to be a great land. I'm going to give you wealth and comfort and peace. It's a gift. It's a good thing from God. He says, but with it is going to come temptation. The temptation is going to be to say, I did this. I made this. I have everything I need and you're going to start to trust yourselves rather than me. So the answer is not to seek suffering as if it were a good thing that we just need to get as much of it as we can. The answer is to understand that God is the one who we depend on. We are not independent creatures. We need our maker. We need our savior. We need our sustainer. And suffering reminds us of that. And so when it comes, don't go seek it out, but when it comes, understand that God has purpose in it and that he's doing something good in it in your life. When you see in your suffering the hand of God, then you'll respond to it as an opportunity for growth. And that will be different than just being caught by surprise like we so often can. So as we wrap up this morning, how do we do that? Right? What does that look like? How do we practically grow in the midst of suffering or even persecution like this? Well, Ian Dugwood, who I quoted earlier today, he's got a funky name, but he has some good things to say. He draws a helpful framework from this passage that I think is really helpful in wrapping our mind around, when you go through suffering, when you go through difficulty, what should you do? I want you to remember four words. Four words. Ready? Believe, resist, teach, pray. Believe, resist, teach, and pray. That's how you persevere and grow through suffering. First, we have to believe. Right, We have to believe what is true. We have to believe in the one who is true. Who are the ones who stand firm against Antiochus' evil in verse 32? He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. Because people don't risk everything on a whim. You don't just decide, I think I'm going to go and risk death today to oppose this tyrant because it feels good. You're moved to that by conviction. And what God says is it's going to be the people who know their God, who have met him, who are walking with him, they are the ones who will stand firm. They are the ones who will take action. When God is their rock, then they're going to be unshaken by the waves of circumstance that wash over them. So, who's your rock? What is your rock? What's your life's foundation? Do you believe in God? And even more important than asking if you believe in God is, are you believing in God today? Do you continue to believe in God? Are you shaping your thinking and your living around what he has said, what he has done, so that when these circumstances come into your life, you're ready and you're prepared to respond in a right way? You don't build houses in storms. Right? That's, a, that's a bad idea. If you're in the middle of a severe thunderstorm warning and you decide, I'm going to go build a house today, it's going to be a short journey because stuff's going to get blown around, it's going to get thrown around, right? You build houses on nice days. You build houses on sunny days so that you can make them strong and when a storm comes, they stay. They're still there. If you wait until the storm comes into your life in order to start believing God, trusting his word, practicing these things, then you're already toast, You will not be able to stand if you build your faith in the storm, if you wait for that moment to begin to believe and to to set your foundation on who God is. So start today. Use these times. If you're not in a time of suffering right now, take advantage of this time and intentionally build your life around God. Trust what he says. Read his word. Be among his people. Encourage one another. Strengthen one another so that when those moments come, you're ready. So, first, we have to believe. Second, we must resist. We have to swim against the current. We must strive for an obedience to God's commands that will not be easy. Because in verse 32, those who know their God shall stand firm and take action. Following Jesus is not a spectator sport, it's not a football game that you go to and sit in the stands while all the clashes happen down on the field, it's not a TV drama. It's not one you can sit on your couch and watch what happens to the characters and think, oh, isn't that interesting? Following Christ is something that involves work. It involves putting ourselves into this life that we live and following Jesus in a real world with real temptations and trials and real hardships and real consequences. And we are to stand firm in the midst of that. The stakes are high, right? Those who take action are called wise in verse 33, Though we see later on, they are cut down by sword and flame, captivity and plunder. Under Antiochus, some of those who were faithful to God lost their possessions. Some of those who were faithful to God lost their freedoms. Some of those who were faithful to God lost their lives. And yet, they're called wise. How can someone who resisted, who refused to be taken in by Antiochus's flattery, how can they be called wise when they lost everything? Isn't that the opposite of where we want to be? And for many of them, there wasn't even a last-second rescue like we've seen for Daniel and his friends in this book, right? His friends are getting thrown into the fiery furnace. God saves them in a miraculous way at the end. Daniel gets tossed into the lion's den. God preserves him miraculously through the night. Sometimes God does that. Sometimes he doesn't. And for these people, some of them would not get a last-minute rescue. They would lose everything, and yet they're wise. How can that be? Because they knew who was really in charge. They refused to bow the knee to human power because they knew the one who held true power. Jesus, encouraging us in Matthew 10, 28, he said, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, Fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. If, if the worst the world can do to you is kill you, then you're going to be okay. Because you serve one who is Lord over death. Who has triumphed over death. When you know who holds true power, then you can stand in the face of everything this world throws your way. Maybe you're going to go through something as awful as what befell the people of Israel under Antiochus one day. Maybe you're going to go through a different kind of suffering that's smaller in comparison, but in the moment it's going to feel every bit as brutal. You've got to resist. You've got to hold firm, stand firm, and take action based on who you believe in, who you know, the God who has spoken to you, who has called you to himself, who has given his son for you. When you endure suffering, resist. Do not go quietly. Live boldly and obey the one who you know to be the true Lord of the universe. Believe. Resist. Third, teach. Yes, you. Even you. This isn't just one for the pastors or the community group leaders. We need to be a teaching people. Notice in verse 33 that the wise are not just busy living their own lives of faithfulness to God. In verse 33, we're told that they will make many understand. Verse 33, and the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. So even while they are losing their lives, they are making others understand the truth of the situation. There are others who are watching them. And by watching their sacrifices, they understand the reality of who God is. That he's bigger than Antiochus. That there's more to life than just this life. They are teaching by their words and by their actions. They're shaping the thoughts of those around them. They don't have to be preachers. They don't have to be teachers in order to teach in this way. So the question is, who watches you? Who has God placed in your orbit that you influence, and how are you teaching them? What lessons about God and suffering can people learn if they're just paying attention to your life? When you speak about trials and hardships, do they sound like random cold circumstance that unexpectedly has bounced into your life? Or do they sound like a fire by which the God of the universe is forging you? Do they see a hope in you that goes beyond what's right in front of your face? If people do, they're being taught that there's more to life than what this world clings to. You're teaching them as you suffer. Believe, resist, teach, and finally, pray. The whole reason Daniel is seeing this vision and hearing this prophecy in the first place is because of prayer. I remember back to chapter 10. He prayed, God sent the messenger. When we pray, God does everything huge things through what seemed to us to be weak and ineffectual prayers. Because the prayer, the power of prayer is not in the prayer. It's not in the prayer. It's in the one who is the focus of our prayers, the one who holds all of history in his hand, right? Prayer has marked Daniel's faithful living through all of his days, It has saturated his belief in God, his resistance to the seductions of Babylon and Persia, and the instruction that his life has offered to kings and princes who have watched him. It's all been covered, immersed in his life of prayer. Prayer was what got him thrown into the lion's den, because the guys who hated him knew they're not going to pin anything on him unless they make his prayer a weapon to use against him, because he's not going to stop. Believe, resist, teach, And pray, if we do those things in the midst of suffering, we will find ourselves refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, a time that the God of the universe holds squarely in his hand. In verses 30 through 35, we see all this tough stuff, this crucible of suffering, but we're told that some of the wise, though they stumble, they will be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. And contextually, and we, we hear this and we think the time of the end, like the time of the end. But contextually, here, I think what this is talking about is the end of Antiochus, right? That's the way that this language has been used. Remember, we talked about it earlier throughout the text that there is an appointed end that is coming for this guy. There's a finish line. There is a point at which his power gets taken from him. And that time is coming, and God will preserve his people to that end. Whether they live or die in this life, they will outlive the reign of Antiochus. Whether in this world or the next. And the next world is the one that counts. The next world is the one that lasts forever. So when you look at our scary and complex world, where's your hope? Do you trust in your own ability to shape your future? In politicians? Maybe you even trust in the church itself. Or is your trust in the God who determines the end from the beginning? And has put an expiration date on every villain of history. Everyone. How is God refining you today? What trials are you going through that are giving you the opportunity to grow in your faith and trust in your Savior? If you're in a season of comfort right now, if you're not suffering in a significant way, praise God, that's fantastic. And we rejoice in the the good days that you are experiencing. But how are you getting ready for the storms that you know are coming? It won't last forever. How do you need to believe, to resist, to teach, and to pray this week? As you go to community group this week and you think about those four things, which of the four is hardest for you? Which of the four comes least naturally? Believe, resist, teach, and pray. And think about this week and talk about it with your group, about how you can grow in this way how you can become better at using suffering in order to proclaim and to, to trust in God's goodness. And maybe you're here this morning and you just reject all this out of hand. Are you sitting here this morning and you say, you know, I, I'm going to be able to scale the wall of futility that kings of emperor and emperors have crashed against for millennia. Right? Like, it's just stories. It, this, is, this Bible stuff, it's, it's, it's just stuff that that people use to prop themselves up when they don't know how to think or what to do. Like, I'm stronger than that. I don't need this. Know that there is a God in heaven who declares the end from the beginning. Know that he takes an intimate interest in the affairs of human history and in human beings like you and like me. And know that he became a human being. He entered into human history. He dove headfirst into our existence of suffering and futility and he resisted unto death so that you can have a hope that outlives yours. You can ride this merry-go-round over and over for your 70, 80, maybe even 100 years. But in the end, you'll find vanity. You might find wealth, you might find fame, you might find celebrity, you might find power, you might find influence. See what good it does you when your life is done know that this God who is writing the grand story from start to finish doesn't just know you he loves you and he has entered into this world he's not this cold judge sitting up in heaven manipulating things but insulated from the pain and the suffering he came into it he suffered himself the only way to undo the suffering of this world was for the creator of this world to come and suffer and he did so and he offers his life, his grace, his peace, his forgiveness to you if you will trust in him. And you can be brought into his family, into his kingdom, and it's a kingdom that lasts forever. If that sounds new to you this morning, if you've got questions, if you've got doubts, we're not afraid of that here. Start a conversation with a friend. Come and talk to myself, to Pastor Dave, to one of our group leaders. We'd love to start to, start to have that conversation. What does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to trust in him? How can your questions, your doubts be answered? Let's get a cup of coffee and let's start that conversation because it matters, because God is good. Christ is great, and he offers peace and forgiveness to you. And we'd love to have you come alongside us here and share in that. Let's pray. Our God and Father, thank you for your goodness, for your great love with which you have loved us, Thank you that you declare the end from the beginning. That you are making for yourself a people for your own possession. You are refining us through fire. Thank you that when we walk through this world, we do not have to look at our suffering as mere chance, as bad luck, as cold circumstance. But even in our darkest moments, we can see the hand of a loving Father. God, help me to believe that. Help me to see it even when the lights go out. Strengthen me in my weakness and do the same for each person here. Help us to believe, to resist, to teach, to pray that you might mold and shape us to look less like us and more like Jesus so that a watching world can understand something about your greatness, about your goodness, about your love. God, be with us today. May we glorify you in all we do and say and think. And in Christ's name we ask these things. Amen.